Welcome to Cybersecurity Insights and Perspectives. I'm your host, Kevin Green. Today we have industry experts with the insights and perspectives on the latest cybersecurity news that impacts your agency and organization. Today we have Joshua Corman, CTO at Sonatype. Good day, Josh. How are you doing? I'm great. And you? Doing awesome. Right off the heels of RSA 2016. Can you briefly tell us a little bit about RSA 2016 and your experiences there? At least for my part, I spent an awful lot of time focused on this growing rugged DevOps tribe to try to take the best parts of security and be more willing allies and teammates to, to bridge the gap into software development. And I think the DevOps tribes have similar and shared values with us. So uh, on Monday of RSA, we ran a thousand person free conference, invited a bunch of speakers from the DevOps tribe like Jez Humble and John Willis from Docker. And so some of the key people on their end with some of the key experimenters on our end um, and that was pretty pretty great. We recorded all those talks and you're kind of trying to transcend what doesn't work very well for traditional software security and make it work a whole lot better in a more developer and business-friendly way as these new patterns come out. So for me, a lot of talks I went to were either around that or around cyber safety. I did some talks via IamTheCavalry.org on automotive safety. And there were quite a few talks on industrial control systems or hacking or pacemaker or car hacking, et cetera. So that was my focus for the week. Speaking of RSA, you said software is infecting the world. It's spreading like a virus from one of your sessions at RSA this year, 2016, from your session entitled Safer at Any Speed, The Road to Automotive Cyber Safety. One of the questions I would like to know, how can we heal the world from this type of virus you're talking about? And what are some sound recommendations would you give? So that's a, that's a tough one. Yeah, I was trying to play off the whole Ralph Nader book, Unsafe at Any Speed, which kind of transformed car safety uh, back in the 70s. The way I put it is everyone's heard the Mark Andreessen quote that software is eating the world. And what he means is that everyone, regardless of what you do, is becoming a software company. And this is more of a business and innovation point. But as a security guy like yourself, like I can't help but think it's actually infecting the world, right? You're putting Bluetooth and Wi-Fi on the things that are highly vulnerable and can actually hurt people. So it's obviously it's not a plague and a virus because we would never do it if it was. I just think that we're putting software there for its obvious benefits and we're not paying attention to the the, the costs and the risks that come with that. And we're going to have to find a happy medium where we only connect things where we can sufficiently defend them. So putting Bluetooth on a pacemaker or an insulin pump may not be prudent if you can't really, in a cost-effective way, secure that against unauthorized access or giving a lethal dose of insulin, for example. So I'm trying to bring some sanity into the idea that the Internet of Things, just because you can put software and connectivity on it doesn't mean you have to. I mean, you and I know there's a defect rate per 1,000 lines of code, so the more code, more problems, right? I made a Biggie Smalls uh, meme out of that one time, and uh, it's just so true. So you think about if there's a defect rate per 1,000 lines of code and Windows Seven had like 40 million lines of code, and a modern vehicle has over 100 million lines of code. There's a lot of flaws in there, and it just takes one to cause a pretty bad outcome. So I think the observation is, as we put software into things, we make it weaker, and as we connect it to everything else, we make it weaker and exposed. And therefore, just because you can put software somewhere doesn't mean you necessarily should. And when you do it, you know we need to increase. The, the level of threat modeling and software development lifecycle and 
um, we need a better species of software. And you've often heard that we don't have building codes for building code. You know, you can't build a bridge or a skyscraper without, you know, proven building codes. And while I don't want to have licenses to write software, um, where software can affect public safety, human life, national security, it probably needs to be held to a higher standard. So one of the things we outlined in that talk and elsewhere is uh, IamTheCavalry.org put out about a year and a half ago a five-star automotive cyber safety framework. And we, we more recently put out a Hippocratic Oath for connected medical devices. And in them, we basically say that all systems fail. And now that we have you know, connected vehicles or computers on wheels, you have to have these five postures to be ready for failure. So when I'm describing it to my neighbor, I say, tell your customers how you avoid failure, tell researchers you'll take help avoiding failure, how do you capture and learn from failure, how do you have a prompt and agile response to failure, and how do you contain and isolate failure. And we believe across those five, um, if you have a good story, then it's not will cars be hacked, it's how bad will it be and how quickly can you respond when it happens. So for your more technical audiences, the, the, the technical terms are star number one is, do you have a public attestation of how you do security by design so that your customers can act in an informed way before they buy your goods? Number two is, do you have a coordinated disclosure program advertising a welcome mat to third-party researchers instead of a beware of dog sign? So do you have a public attestation of your coordinated disclosure program for third-party collaboration? The third one is kind of like a black box you have in airplanes where do you have tamper-evident, forensically sound evidence capture and security logging so that you can notice you've been attacked and study and learn from it like we do with the aviation crashes. The fourth is do you have security updates. So when you've been hacked, can you do a prompt and agile secure over the air update? Or do you have to send out USB tokens to all your customers and hope that they apply them someday maybe correctly? I think something like only 30% of the, the Uconnects have actually been fixed since the public revelation of the GPAC. So you want to have something that's faster and more comprehensive in reach so that you, uh, you can actually respond to failure. And the last one is, can you separate critical systems from non-critical systems? Because hacking the Jeep stereo, for example, um, might have been bad for changing your preset radio stations, but because it could also shut off the brakes or turn the steering wheel, that's the real problem. So if there's you know, proper logical and physical uh, segmentation isolation, then the, the the consequences of a compromise are significantly diminished. Yeah, I caught your cyber meets hip hop reference. Biggie Smalls is the illest. I caught that. <laughs> <laughs> but Josh, here's a, here's another question. You know, I think because software is eating the world and software is everywhere, I tend to think self healing software or the ability to provide the capability for software to heal itself is something that we need to really consider, have some strong considerations around. What are your thoughts on self-healing technologies for modern, for modern software, in particular IoT, IoT devices and wearable devices? What are your thoughts on self-healing software in general? Well, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, you know, on, on the one hand, you know, I'm really excited by some of the things that software-defined networking and DevOps and continuous integration and continuous delivery. I mean, this is one of the reasons the rugged DevOps tribe is so exciting because as people push the edges of what you can do and how dynamic and polymorphic you can make your, your environments and how quickly you can notice deviations and respond quickly to them. So I wouldn't say self-healing software per se, although I've seen some academic papers, but I would say that you know self-healing 
IT is absolutely tenable. Um, there are some interesting things, like if you go back to the Rainbow Series and the Orange Book, the idea of the Orange Book Reference Monitor, you know, simply knowing what's going on um, in our software is still a stretch goal for a lot of us, right? You're starting to see pieces of the uh, Orange Book Reference Monitor showing up in the real world now. And there's been some cool projects um, done for the government um, of crumple zones for software and, you know, essentially resilience and survivability studies out of um, Carnegie Mellon University Software Engineering Institute. And these are all, you know, peers and precursors to some of the spirit of the rugged tribe. But, um, you know, as far as self-healing software and IoT, that's really tough. When you look at the average IT, IoT device, it's going to include, you know, maybe something that costs less than $10. And the likelihood they're going to have a, a CPU capable of doing, you know, a cryptographic communication layer is near zero. The idea that it's got enough onboard storage to take a new software image, you know, for an update when they find out OpenSSL is, you know, vulnerable, that's near zero. So I think for basic blocking and tackling, IoT is years away from having even, you know, half of the five-star we just outlined. Um, so I really want them to focus on future-proofing the design so that it can be patched and updated, that it, it can have segmentation and isolation, that it has some sort of, sort of security logging. And, and those things are, for many of these players, a stretch goal. It's certainly not required by any regulatory regime. Um, I think where I have hope is that while it's not self-healing, you're starting to see more and more people look at like an underwriter's laboratory seal for medical devices and industrial control systems. The cyber seal is coming out soon for those two use cases. And while it's going to be a 1.0, you know, starting to require things like do you have a bill of materials with a third-party open source software? Are there known vulnerabilities in that bill of materials? Can your products and goods be patched and updated? And the answer right now for a lot of these systems is no. I think when Heartbleed hit, like less than half of the devices affected by Heartbleed could be patched um, in a lot of the initial scans. And that's pretty troubling because if we're going to depend on this third-party software for its benefits, we also want to be able to do something about it when it's revealed to be vulnerable. There still remain unpatched systems on the Internet due to developers and organizations using known bad components as part of their software development process. You've been a huge proponent for including bill of materials as part of software development. Can you briefly talk about some of the work you're doing in this area? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've dedicated the better part of two and a half years to, to trying to raise this issue. Um, I mean, it was a big wake-up call for me. I think when you and I met, I, I was pushing rugged software and AppSec broadly. But when I was at Akamai, the director of security intelligence, I started seeing a lot of the attacks were shifting from like SQL injection or DDoS maybe down to a known vulnerability in Apache Struts 2. <laughs> so instead of hacking one bank, if I can hack Apache Struts 2, I can get every bank. And that was a huge wake-up call for me. I didn't realize that financial services and government institutions were starting to use so much open source. And then I looked closer, and like 90% of a modern piece of software is open source. So I'm not anti-open source. It just means that what I came to to realize is we have a supply chain, just like cars and medical devices and physical world has supply chains, but we don't manage it like one. And as such, I've really been focused on what can we learn from Edward Deming and Toyota supply chains from the 40s that he developed not to make safer cars, but to make profitable in, in industrial engineering and manufacturing. So I'm taking three proven supply chain principles and I'm trying to port them into modern software development. 
because instead of like pointing a finger at software developers and calling them lazy and irresponsible for not writing secure code, what if you could make the easy and profitable thing happen to be the safe and secure thing? So these three principles from Deming are, number one, you should use fewer and better suppliers. Number two, you should use the highest quality parts from those suppliers. And number three is you should track which um, parts went where throughout manufacturing. So when there's a bad Dakota airbag, you don't have to recall every vehicle that you've sold, just the vehicle identification numbers that got the bad batch. And we just don't do that with software. So with that, um, I've done a kind of a carrot and stick approach where on the carrot side I've been showing how much um, developer waste in the form of unplanned and unscheduled work there is per year from not picking the freshest of ingredients. So if you're going to pick Bouncy Castle as a crypto library like is legion throughout the federal government, there was a CVSS 10 remote code execution flaw in 2007. That project immediately fixed that flaw. And despite a fix being available for the last seven plus years, when I first looked, now it's I guess eight, nine years, um, people were still using the vulnerable one. So they're both free, they both work the same, they both have the same APIs. One of them is remotely exploitable and one of them is not. So I wanted to raise visibility on that, and I thought the best way to do show was to show developers that you can dramatically reduce unplanned work by always picking the freshest of ingredients so you don't have to stop what you're doing and go fix something six months, 12 months, three years later. Well, I think we have to wrap it up here. We want to thank our guest today, Joshua Corman. We also want to thank our listeners for tuning into Cybersecurity Insights and Perspectives on FedSchool Radio with your host, Kevin Green. Until next time, peace.